Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Windy City Podcast, thank you for putting us on, especially if you're doing it this particular day, June 1st. 2020, crazy, depressing, sad times for all. Steve Stone is coming up. We'll talk baseball, baseball coming back or not coming back. And Steve's an interesting guy to have on today uh, for many reasons, one of which is that he was a baseball player at Kent State. Uh, That was during 1970, which was the Kent State shootings. 13 unarmed Kent State University students were killed uh, during protests back in 1970, which unfortunately is at least somewhat similar to today. And I think there are a lot of things that are obvious right now. Protesting, wanting to make the world a better place, voting in smaller elections alongside the presidential election coming up in November, all important, right? I was reading a piece from Barack Obama that he put out today on Medium. And one of the things he wrote that I thought was worth underlining, it's mayors and county executives that appoint most police chiefs and negotiate collective bargaining bargaining agreements with police unions. It's district attorneys and state attorneys that decide whether or not to investigate and ultimately charge those involved in police conduct. Those are all elected positions. In some places, police review boards with the power to monitor police conduct are elected as well. And unfortunately, as Barack writes, voter turnout in these local races is usually pitifully low, especially among young people which makes no sense given the direct impact these offices have on social justice issues. Not to mention the fact that who wins and who loses those seats is often determined by just a few thousand or even a few hundred votes. Now, I can look right in the mirror on that. I don't vote in those elections. I'm not paying attention to police review boards, district attorneys, state attorneys. I fall in that pitifully low. So I think a lot of this is, right, you know, looking in the mirror, where can you be better? And I think back to, you know, growing up privileged, Highland Park, Illinois, had everything that really I could ever want, right? And, but I was taught certain lessons, right? You know, my dad would say to me, Mark, you're really lucky to have your own room. You know, not every kid gets their own bedroom. Right. And we would, 
or my dad would do different things like he would pitch up one time I remember him picking up a hitchhiker and here's a guy he's got a bag on his shoulder probably hasn't showered in a week and my dad's picking him up and I you know there's a lesson in there right he's no worse no better than you do what you can be empathetic and we drove the guy for, I don't know, 500 feet because he wanted us to get on the highway and we were going a different direction. But I still remember it. And I was scared when he got in the car, flat out scared. But my dad wanted to teach that lesson and I appreciate him for it. So we've been here before. We're going to be here again if we don't do things differently. And I don't want to be heavy-handed or anything like that, but it's just true, right? This is not entirely new. It's new to the point that I slept at the radio station on Saturday night, afraid to ride home on my bike because of the rioting going on. And it's new that when I was riding through the loop on Sunday morning, Chase Bank, Starbucks, and so many other buildings were broken into and you know, all sorts of different graffiti, and it was painful to see. But, you know, we, and it's not to excuse any of those actions. You should be prosecuted. You should go to jail. But we do have to look in the mirror and realize how we created this. And more importantly than that, how to make it better. Otherwise, we will be right back here again. I was looking up some Martin Luther King quotes and everybody was watching my guy Nick Wright pulling out one of his quotes and I've heard so many people quoting Martin Luther. And here are some. Human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice suffering, and struggle. The tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. Now, I think we all know where we fall on that one. Short. Here's another one. People fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. You hear a lot of times, I don't see race. I don't see your skin color. Yes, you do. And we all have our biases and we all have our judgments. But what's underlined there is communication. Getting to know your fellow man slash woman. Voicing that you are fearful. And then, oh, this person is no different than me. They want the same exact things. They want a roof over their head. They want food on their table. They want to be able to take a vacation. They want to go to a sporting event, whatever it is. They want to get naked and do the naked dance. I mean, come on. We're, all, we're so similar. And here's an uplifting one. I refuse to accept the view 
that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. What an incredible statement and belief and hope. Truly beautiful. So, I believe that too. Sometimes. I have my doubts, let's be honest. But, I certainly believe that that is worth striving for. Time to look in the old mirror for everybody, certainly for myself. Where can I be better? How can I be more active? What can I do? Hope you're all staying safe out there. Thank you so much for having on to Windy City Podcast. Let's bring in my conversation with Steve Stone, which happened just before everything kind of broke in Chicago on Saturday afternoon. So we didn't touch specifically about uh, the rioting over the weekend. Uh, but, of course, the pandemic and Kent State and baseball coming back is in there. Hope you enjoy the conversation with Steve Stone. The TV voice of your Chicago White Sox and, of course, a long, long history in baseball, which, of course, includes a Cy Young Award with the Baltimore Orioles in 1980. Steve Stone, this is awesome to talk to you today. I appreciate it. How, how are you hanging during these crazy times? Well, quite obviously, this time of year, you're used to calling baseball games. And so when you're not calling baseball games, things are a whole lot different. But, you know, it's... Um, it's extraordinary times and you just deal with whatever comes along on a daily basis. Right now it's, uh, it's trying to stay as current as possible. Um, I enjoy doing shows like this because I find myself with a lot of time on my hands, but I'm not unusual. Everybody feels the same way. I know in Chicago, uh, you folks are locked down a little bit more than we are here in uh, Arizona. So it's been a bit more restrictive and certainly, uh, you get to the point where cabin fever is uh, is something that you deal with on a daily basis. We still don't have quite everybody open yet, but more places are open down here than in most cities. So things are okay. Uh, but but I think that um, I think missing the game of baseball, missing the the everyday grind that is a championship season, is something that all of us who are attached to the game, not only the the people who work there, but the fans. I think everybody is. Uh, is missing, rooting for their team, uh, going through the highs and the lows of the season, and uh, hopefully we can get back to it. That takes me to, do you think we're going to have baseball? And I'll, I'll read you Max Scherzer's tweet uh, from the player side of things earlier this week. He says, after discussing the latest developments with the rest of the players, there's no reason to engage with Major League Baseball in any further compensation reductions we have previously negotiated a pay cut in the version of prorated salaries, and there's no justification to accept a second pay cut based on the current information the union has received. I'm glad to hear other players voicing the same viewpoint and believe MLB's economic strategy would completely change if all documentation were to become public information. I guess there's two-part question there, Steve. Number one, your reaction to him, and number two, uh, do you think we get past what's going on with the players and the owners right now and we'll have baseball? 
Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, you don't have to read me <clears throat> Max's uh, <clears throat> Max's tweet because I read it all. I read the whole article about it. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it strikes me a couple of different ways. Number one, I really appreciate Max Scherzer as a performer, and I think he's a pretty smart guy. I also believe it's a lot easier to be terribly independent when you have $200 million in the bank. I think that's really the case of a lot of, uh, a lot of players who have made a lot of money because the, the Major League Baseball Players Association has been, will be, continues to be run by a lot of the veterans, the stars of the game, the guys who have already made their fortune. They don't really have to worry about uh, having a tag day anytime soon. Guys like Mike Trout um, and uh, guys like Max Scherzer, guys like Justin Verlander, guys like uh, Bryce Harper, they have the two to $300 million in the bank, and they have a lot promised to them, so it's not a problem. <clears throat> However, what a lot of people don't understand, and let's take it one step further than Max Scherzer. Let's take the Scott Boros quote. Boros said that uh, he feels the same way. He feels that players should not move an inch. They've given enough. And understand something with Scott Boros and all the agents, not just him, but all the agents will be agents next year. And they're going to be agents the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that for the foreseeable future, which means that they're going to get a lot of money. Boros has high-profile clients. He's negotiated over a billion dollars in salaries. Uh, uh, he's going to make a lot of money down the road. But one of the things that I wish everybody would think about when they're negotiating on both sides of the equation is how many players are going to lose their careers over what's happening now if they shut down the game. Young players who might get a shot this year might not get a shot in other years. Older players who are hanging on maybe to get one more payday, one more year, one more day in the sunshine, one more piece of glory, they're not going to be brought back if there's no baseball this year because this is a sport of attrition. They will lose their skills, and then nobody will want them back. That's just the way this goes. So let's give some consideration to the guys that will lose their careers something they've done all their lives if there's no baseball this year. And, Mark, I know there's a middle ground here. I know there's a middle ground between the intractable sides of both sides of the equation. I've heard what the players had to say. I've heard what the owners have to say. The owners are saying if I lose X number of dollars being shut down, I can't lose two or three times that much being open because this is a for-profit business. A for-profit business is not a sin. You're in business to make money. And if you can't make money, it makes no sense to then open the doors. And understand something else. This is a one-off negotiation. In other words, whatever happens in this negotiation in these extraordinary times is not going to have any bearing on the collective bargaining agreement that's coming down the road. So when they, when they go to negotiate that CBA, which is coming up after next season, it's not going to matter what happens this year. That's just kind of the way it is. This is a one-off negotiation. If they agree to a designated hitter on both sides of the equation, doesn't mean that's going to be baseball in the future. If they agree to anything this year, it doesn't mean that's going to be baseball in the future. It just means that two sides have come to an understanding in an extraordinary time, and we're going to see 82 baseball games this year. So the answer, the very long answer to a very short question was, I don't know if there's going to be baseball. I can only hope there is. I do know in every negotiation there is a middle ground. I hope that both sides find it. 
Yeah, as, as do I, Steve. Like, look, for those of us who work around the game, you want the game to come back. For those of us who just enjoy the game, you want the game to come back. Uh, I, From the owner, and I'm not, listen, I'm, I find myself right in the middle here. But when I look at things from the owner's side, this is a, and similar to what you're saying about the agents, because this is their whole career. You know, they're, they don't play for 10 years. They're an agent. They can be for 30 years or 50 years, whatever it is. The owner's. This is a lifetime investment, right? And and maybe an investment to infinity if you just keep on passing it down to your kids. So, and baseball's had tremendous earnings the last, you know, 10, 15, however many years. You would think as a good owner that you would, st- you know, put some dough away. So one down year, something like this that is on some level, completely unpredictable, but you would have a stash of dough that, well, if, if things do go completely crazy and we have a pandemic or whatever you were you know, thinking it could be, you, you'd you be able to survive this more than, say, a player who does have this finite time when he can actually make the money. Does that make sense? Well, it certainly, <clears throat> certainly it makes sense a bit. However, understand that you have 30 different owners and you have 30 different set of circumstances. We don't know where their obligations are. We don't know overall how much money they have. Now, what happens with owners, as you probably know, because of the appreciation of their ball clubs, let's take the Cleveland Indians, because I happen to know some of their numbers. Um, they were bought for $320 million. Dolan, who owns the team, uh, got $250 million in a deal with a local uh, television station that puts on the games. So he's in it at this point for basically $70 million. But the point is this. That franchise bought for $320 million has appreciated to where it's maybe a billion three, maybe a billion four, depending on if the stadium goes with it and the lease and everything else that goes with it. So the point is that if you're not making a great operating windfall, and some teams aren't, depending on the size of their market, then you depend on appreciation. But appreciation, Mark, only comes into play when you sell the team. And these guys don't want to sell their team to realize the money because they lost a great deal of money in one year, and now they're going to have to divest themselves. That's not the ideal situation. So I don't know what the deal is. This is the classic labor management argument that every time we see negotiations, whether it's with a a union or anybody else, labor and management are on two different sides of the equation. There is no right. There is no wrong. There just is what is. And I don't know the parameters of every different one of these owners. You know, for every guy that is worth $4 billion, there's another guy that has to wait for the appreciation to see what he really makes out of his team. And maybe if you're in a small market, the operating plus is not all that good. It's not the New York Yankees. It's not the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's not the Chicago Cubs. It's not teams that make a great deal of revenue because of a number of different sources of revenue. Some other teams aren't making all that much money on a daily basis. And I'm not saying we cry for them because, obviously, if you're, if you're a team owner, you're a wealthy man. But the point is, there's different sets of circumstances, and we don't know what they are. I do know that no business stays in business by losing money. 
if they lose money for a great deal of time, they go out of business. We're going to see it now. I'm in the restaurant business with Let Us Entertain You in Chicago. We have a lot of restaurants. Um, Some of them that were closed will not come back into existence. And the problem is not that the restaurant goes out, although I would hate to see that, certainly. It's how many people does that business employ that don't have jobs? The same thing is true with baseball. How many people make their living off of baseball that are not baseball players? Lots of them do. How many people are interested in this game to do whatever, to be a a, a pastime, to be part of their summer, to be a reminiscence of their youth when they played the game? How many people? A lot of people. So there's interest on both sides to get this thing settled. I can't say one side is is, uh, better than the other side. I just hope and I know that every negotiation eventually comes to an end, and every negotiation, neither side gets what they want, but they peacefully coexist, and we're all hoping that this is the same. White Sox TV boy Steve Stone with us here on 720 WGN. Steve, are you worried about the, the minor leagues? And I'm, I'm reading this tweet, not, not for you, by the way, but for our listeners who, who don't know it. Uh, Dayton Moore, general manager of the Kansas City Royals, he put this out this morning, or he spoke yesterday, and it's, it's coming on social media today. Understand this, the minor league players, the players you never know about, the players who never get out of rookie ball or high A, those players have as much impact on the growth of our game than 10-year or 15-year veteran players. They have as much opportunity to influence the growth of our game as those individuals because they work in academies, they're JUCO coaches, they're college coaches, they're scouts, they're coaches in pro baseball, and I'll throw in, you know, they can end up being back in high school wherever. Um, people are and and some and the Royals are choosing to pay all their minor league players, whereas other organizations are not are cutting more guys. Uh, and the minor leagues have always been incredibly inefficient, and very few guys actually make it to the majors. But there's a ton of people in this country that love minor league baseball. That is their vehicle to go to games, and it seems like that's going to change. Are, are you are you seeing the same thing? Are you concerned about it? I'm very concerned about it because there's a lot of very small communities around this country that have no chance of ever getting a major league team within reasonable driving distance. That's just the way it is. But communities have a summer pastime with their minor league teams, whether it's low A, whether it's rookie ball, whether it's uh, a high class A or double A or triple A. There's beautiful stadiums in double A and triple A, by the way. And yes, I'm worried about that. And I think to educate the fans a bit, let me tell you that, 95%, 95% of professional players never see one day in the major leagues. So for every one of the Max Scherzers and Justin Verlanders around, there are shiploads of guys that don't even get a sniff. They play their year or two of professional baseball, and then they go home to do exactly what Dayton Moore said. Dayton Moore is a very intelligent and very talented general manager. I listen to him. I know him well. We're friends. I really enjoy what he has to say, and he's exactly right when he talks about the impact of minor league baseball and the impact of minor league baseball on these small communities around the country. I mean, a lot of my friends that are down here in Arizona, both uh, the off season and, and now this time of year, They're from Iowa, and Iowa has a few minor league teams. But Iowa's not getting a major league team. That's just the way it is. And so they depend on their minor leagues 
and they take pride in the fact that, oh, this guy made it to, uh, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals, this guy made it to the Chicago Cubs, this guy made it here or made it there, and they came through Iowa. I saw him when he was just a young kid. Boy, I thought he had a lot of promise, and look what he grew up to be. I mean, that's a sense of pride for these communities. And, yes, this is going to affect them drastically. And when baseball comes back, they're not coming back with their minor leagues. The minor league season is canceled. It's going to affect a lot of things down the road. Whatever happens in this negotiation between the owners and the players is going to have a ripple effect on all of baseball for years to come. No question. I had an argument on TV yesterday with our friend David Kaplan and uh, and Chuck Garfine, too, uh, who, you know, there's and they're part of, a, and, I, and maybe I think you might be on their side here, Steve, but people are saying that if baseball doesn't come back, Jason Stark wrote this in The Athletic, that we're going to drive the sport off the cliff. And I was just making the point that, look, even if this doesn't work out this year, I, I'm addicted to baseball. I'm addicted to sports. The NHL has a terrible strike for years. That It comes back, I watch hockey. Same thing in the NBA, same thing in the NFL, same thing with Major League Baseball. So the whole concept that the sport is going to go away if they don't figure this out, to me that's over the top. Like The casual fan, they just want to go to the game and with their family or their friends or have a date and eat, eat a hot dog, drink beer, have peanuts. They don't. They're not in the minutia of what's going on right now. So they'll they'll be there when the game comes back. So I, I I want them to get it done. Let me be very clear. I work in the game. I make money around the game. I I love the game. But I also don't think like baseball is going to be gone for good if they don't figure it out and have a season this year. Like how do you see that part of it? Well, let me say first that David Kaplan's entirely wrong, <laughs> and Chuck Garfine, who's one of the guys that works on our broadcast is probably at least half right. I'm not sure exactly where either of them fell because I didn't hear the interview. But let me say this. Baseball will not go away if they don't play baseball this year. So when you say, will the car go over the cliff? No, it's not going to go over the cliff. There's just going to be a lot less people in the car when it gets close to the cliff. Baseball is going to stay. However, remember, in 94... They lost a franchise over a shutdown of the game. That was the Montreal Expos. And also, it took approximately till the home run chase of 98 between Sosa and McGuire to be able to get this game back to where it was. That was a good four seasons. Um, Not the musical group, but four seasons of baseball (laughs) and the lost revenue that came commensurate with it. So I think baseball still survives. But I think that if you give people a chance to, number one, spend their entertainment dollars someplace else, number two, find a diversion one place or another and understand something. You're a fan of hockey. Hockey's coming back. You're a fan of basketball. I believe definitively basketball will be back. And I think it would be detrimental to baseball to abdicate the playing field to hockey, basketball, and then eventually football. I think that's what's going to happen. I don't want to see them leave the playing field to these other sports because if people start to really enjoy these other sports more than they enjoy them already, baseball has to suffer. And baseball has been and will be in a battle for the entertainment dollar, the limited entertainment dollars that we have in this country. And we're going to have less entertainment dollars as a society because right now what is there? 40 million people who are unemployed. 
they're not all going back to work all that quickly. You know, this is unlike anything that ever happened because, yes, there is baseball acrimony between the two sides. That's not new. What is new is it's coming in the time of a pandemic. It's coming in a time when this country is reeling already. It's coming at a time when people are trying to figure out how they're going to pay their bills. Where are they going to get a job when this thing does finally open up? When will it open up? Nobody really knows. Will there be fans at any of these games? Nobody really knows. And, Mark, anybody that tells you that they know exactly what's going to happen, they're lying to you. Nobody knows what's going to happen. There's too much uncertainty. It's not a great position to be in. But we do know that at times like 9-11 and at other times during the war years and everything else, baseball was one of the vehicles that helped this country get back on solid ground. I'm not saying that it's the vehicle. I'm not saying that it's essential to the health and well-being of this country. I am saying that baseball has been ever-present when it's here, when people can use it as a diversion, when they can use it to get away from their everyday problems. Baseball is a wonderful place to do that. And hopefully we'll be talking about this season, you and I, when this season actually picks up. It's a wonderful point, and you know, you think back to 9-11, and everybody remembers George Bush throwing out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium and how powerful that was. I mean, I remember Sammy Sosa running around the bases with a flag after hitting a home run. It was just, it was a, you, it was a beautiful time for baseball to be a part of the country, you know, coming together and coming back. I, Steve, you you have an you know an incredibly interesting history in a million different ways, but. You know, one of those is that you were, you know, you didn't go right into baseball. You decided after, I guess, some debate back at the time, you can tell us about that, but that you were going to go to college and go to Kent State. And that's when the riots happened. Uh, and everything that's going on right now, a lot of extremely upset people, and, and rightfully so. And, and then there's some opportunistic people right now that are doing things that are putting people in danger that should not be happening. So I, I'm just curious how you're looking at what's going on in the world and remembering, you know, you know, the crazy times that you had at Kent State. And I, I, I know you lost friends in that. Am I correct about that? Yeah, the girl, the, the, one of the girls who were killed, <clears throat> Sandy Scheuer from Pittsburgh, was the sweetheart of my fraternity. She was dating a fraternity brother of mine. She was at my apartment. I was playing baseball in Amarillo, Texas, but she was at my apartment with my two roommates when they decided to go down to where the demonstrations were and see what was going on. The uh, guys were looking up this hill. They saw the guns being pointed. They fell to the ground. She was looking down the hill at whatever. She was shot through the back of the head, and she was killed. Uh, two of my fraternity brothers were leading the demonstrations. They were members of SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society. And what happens in all of these, I think, you know, I'm not a, a social uh, commentarian. Uh, I don't have a political show. I do have viewpoints like everybody else. And I think what starts out to be a noble cause, a protest about something that you see that social injustice. In, in this case, you know, police brutality has been very difficult to deal with for the African-American community all over the country. Um, I think there's a way to do that. But unfortunately, you're always going to have provocateurs who come on the scene and start to burn things. And more times than not, we were in Baltimore. We did the game with no fans in it. We were there after the Baltimore riots. Well, guess what? They burned their own neighborhoods down, and they're not fixed up even yet. 
If you have a business, a business that was reeling because of the pandemic, you have a business in an area and you have a riot and your business is burned down, are you going to rebuild it in that neighborhood? I don't think so. There isn't a lot of thought to what comes next. And unfortunately, we're seeing it all over the country. And it's very sad for the people in the middle of it. It's very sad for the people who start out with a noble cause and a legitimate grievance to all of a sudden see it descend into chaos. And before you know it, businesses and neighborhoods that were starting to be decimated by this pandemic are even decimated worse. And some things just can't be put back together again. There are not the dollars to do it. There won't be the desire to do it. And unfortunately, to this point, it seems to be spreading instead of dissipating. And that's the saddest part of this whole thing. No question. Steve Stone with us for just a couple more minutes here on 720 WGN. Steve, I appreciate you speaking on a wide variety of topics this evening. Uh, let, let's end on a kind of a fun note. This is all speculative here, too. But uh, I'm trying to figure out. So if baseball comes back and they play 82 games, will this work out to be better for the White Sox or worse for the White Sox? Can Michael Kopech start the season on the mound versus maybe he'd been in the, I would think he would have been in the minors until at least May. Like, have you kind of thought this through as to will this be a benefit to the White Sox or actually this hurts them because you're taking off half the season where guys would be developing? Well, you know, in the legal world, what they tell you is you never answer a hypothetical question. <laughs> you have a number of hypothetical aspects to this question. But let me tell you something. If the Sox were destined this season to win 70 games, I think if they win 70 games in an 82-game season, they're probably <laughs> going to win the division. How's that? That that would work. I'm, I I – you know, I prefer a, a whole baseball season, but there is an element. Now, you're, you're, yeah, you're going to get, look, you're going to get, if you get a baseball season at all, it's going to be anywhere from 78 to 82 games. Um, the usual advantage is when you start in warm weather, the Sox have a lot of excellent Latino players used to be playing in, in hotter weather. I think that's the advantage of the Sox. Also, I think that younger players start out, more quickly than older players. Sometimes it takes older players a chance. Uh, you know, it takes them a while to get used to the pace, the rhythm of the game, whereas younger players seem to get to it right away. So I think everything is to the advantage of the White Sox, assuming that we can get some play in. I want to see, uh, I mean, I had no idea that Carlos Rodon and perhaps Michael Kopech would absolutely be ready on opening day. But it appears if they play that they probably will be. The problem is they're not getting a whole lot of competition in in the meantime. But injuries will be out the door. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what they're doing right now as far as keeping themselves ready to go. But injuries won't be a problem. But I caution one thing. You have to have a fairly substantial re-spring training because pitchers are our gold. And if you run through a couple of prized arms because you've tried to rush spring training into a championship season, you're never going to see the likes of that again. It's going to reverberate through your organization for years. So I caution the players and the owners, have a requisite amount of spring training. My feeling is at least three weeks. Have three weeks of spring training to get these pitchers back on board. 
make sure their arms are strong. The last thing you want to do is lose two or three of your prime pitchers and have them sit out for 14 months with Tommy John surgery or even worse, substantial rotator cuff problems. Which you dealt with, Steve Stone, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Both. Okay, I didn't. I I forget. I didn't know you had the Tommy John. I knew you had the rotator cuff. And you... well, I didn't. I, I didn't have surgery. I had elbow and shoulder problems, but no surgeries. Can you uh, can you speculate, Steve, as to when you'll pass Jason Benetti in the Twitter battle here? Because I'm looking at it. You're at forty one three. 41,300. Benetti's at 44,900. I've got you passing him on August 28th. What do you think? Well, this is very difficult. This is a very (laughs) difficult situation because, you know, we don't have a chance to really get out and meet the community and talk a little bit and interact. And Jason, don't forget, Jason had, I think, a three- or four-year head start on me. I just am learning this. Jason is my IT guy. If Jason hadn't taught me how to do this, I wouldn't be doing it. So I think the fact that I'm this close is actually a remarkable feat. So assuming we get things rolling, because Jason puts on videos, he puts on he puts on specials, he has you know all these great guests. You know, Jason's a, a national guy. I'm just a I'm just an old local guy. So I, I think just being that close is pretty good. And Jason knows this medium backwards and forwards. I mean, he knows he knows everything about it. So uh, to me, uh, just the fact that over forty-one thousand people are following me, and at least for this point, uh, uh, I don't think I've blocked more than uh, I don't know six, eight thousand people. <laughs> so I, I think you know, I think we're in pretty good shape going forward. I love your Twitter. It is uh, you. You put strong Steve Stone level opinions out there. And there is a strong level of threat. If you're going to be a pain in my ass, I will block you. And uh, well, that's, yeah, that's the thing because I, this, first of all, this is uh, this is not a paid endeavor. These people are on there. I give them my content. They either agree with it or not, and it doesn't cost them anything. And so because I don't want to have any more aggravation in my life than I'm forced to have anyway, I will respond to these people and give them, you know, I I give them a warning. I tell them they're getting tedious or, you know, that's enough. Um, And then eventually I just block them. I I always felt that uh, life is too short. If someone's aggravating you, you don't have to interact with them unless, uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. And we know on Twitter it's not necessary to interact with anybody. But I do interact with people, which is something that a lot of Twitter folks don't do. Do you enjoy it? I do. Yeah, that's, that's, that was what I was trying to ascertain here as I'm reading these tweets and like looking at your replies. I think Steve has fun with this. It seems like you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it, right? I mean, you wouldn't. Right. I, uh, yeah, I do have I do have a lot of fun with it, and some of the people are terrific. Most you know, most of the people are terrific. They really are. They kind of understand what's going on. Sometimes I throw things out there just to start conversations, and and you know, people get really excited. <laughs> the thing you know, the one the one thing I said recently is um, this country needs baseball, and people are telling me no, this country needs testing. No, this country needs a vaccine. Yeah, I know. I'm not a moron. I understand that. This was just, I'm going to throw it out there. You know, I, I don't want to cure all of society's ills in a tweet of limited limited uh, characters. 
I'm just telling you something that I think it needs. And, of course, people get very excited. And some of them, you know, some of them have uh, legitimate opinions and those I, I like to interact with. See, that's where I have conversations with my father, who I believe thinks that I'm an idiot and might be correct, at least in, <laughs> on some levels. But, you know, he would I would be talking about sports and he would kind of be like, well, Mark, there's more important things in life than Michael Jordan. Yes. or." Yeah, like dad, correct. I'm aware. However, I'm very interested in number 23 in red and white as an 11 year old growing up in the city. So I'm going to talk about him more than my, I'm going to talk about my science class. Where, by the way, I'm aware that uh, both of us. One thing I do have in common with you, Steve, not the pitching level and broadcasting talent, but I did graduate high school with a 1.51 GPA. And I, I believe you were right around that range when you were coming out of high school. Perhaps not the most dedicated uh, I, student. I dwarfed you. I had a one five three. I think I was. I think I was seven hundred and thirteen. In I, I was. Uh, I was five hundred and seventy first or something in a class of seven thirteen. Some some ridiculous thing like that. And then uh, my my uh, my college. Well, it was my college counselor when I was in high school. She was the she was the college counselor, and she called me in and she told me to join the army. I said, "Have you read the newspapers lately? <laughs> um, they got this thing in Southeast Asia, this Vietnam thing that's going on. I'm not going to join the army." But thank you very much. I said, "I don't know how I'll make it in college, but I will." So that's that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I was unmotivated, and then I started reading later on, and everything worked out pretty well. But. You know, as you probably explained to your dad, as I had to talk with my dad on occasion, look, there's no way in this conversation we're having that we can solve world hunger or Middle East peace. So let's have a good time with sports or do whatever. Steve, appreciate it. And I, I think my dad eventually uh, understood that one. I, at least I, I hope he did. Um, maybe, I'll, okay. yeah, maybe I'll call him tonight. Hey, uh, great to be with you. Last one here, and I appreciate the time. Can I get one Harry story on the way out here? Depends on what you want. <laughs> and, and which one? Anything that you feel is 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 WGN, uh, you know, appropriate. We don't have to go to the you know the bottom of the barrel here, but something something on the fun side. Okay, well, let's see. Uh, no, bottom of the barrel. We won't. The, the things that didn't get in my book, uh, and, and that was for sure. And uh, but uh, let's see. But oh, okay. So. As you know, during the time that Harry became the Cub fan and a Bud man, uh, one of uh, Budweiser's spokesmen, actually he was a spokes dog, was Spuds McKenzie. <laughs> and uh, Harry, if he got the first name right, would always get the last name wrong. If he got the last name right, he'd get the first name wrong. And so before they started selling every rooftop, Budweiser had sold uh, – a gigantic one of the rooftops over the right center field wall with a gigantic Spuds McKenzie blow up. I mean, it was it was huge, and so I said, "Hey Harry, there's your buddy over the right center field wall," and he said, "Oh yeah, that's Scotty McKenzie." I said, "No, Harry, that that's not Scotty McKenzie." I said, "That it's Spuds." He goes, "Oh yeah, Spuds McFadden." I said, no, it's not Spuds McFadden. I said, forget it. You're losing the point of this anyway. It's got enough publicity. So the last time we ever did a live broadcast, the last time we did, by, by, by I mean, a live open, Harry, there was me and there was Wayne Larravee, and Harry said, okay, 
He started the broadcast, and he goes, Harry Carey, along with Ben Stein. <laughs> and I look at him. He looks at me. He says, no, you're not Ben Stein. I said, no. Then he goes, okay, Harry Carey, along with Dave Stone. I looked at him again. He said, well, that's not right. He said, what's your name? I said, Steve Stone. He says, that's it. Harry Carey, along with Steve Stone. That was live. That was the last live open we ever did. Oh After that, it was on tape. So, yeah, that was uh, that was Harry. He was pretty good. He was unpredictable, and uh, he was a charming fellow. He most definitely was. And you've got a charming fellow next to you in the booth right now in, in, in Jason Benetti, who you're going to pass August 28th, Steve. I'll remind you. Hopefully we'll be having some baseball, and I can – well, I don't know if I'll be able to see you at a park this year, but at least at some point uh, down the line here. But thanks so much for being on, Steve. I really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.